evening. On behalf of our senior minister, the Reverend David Wiggs, and the Barton Clinton Gordy Committee, it is my pleasure you, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the second of two lectures featuring Bishop Robert Schneese. We also appreciate the musical ministry of our chancel choir led by Dr. Joel Pansiera. Since 1963, it has been the tradition of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church to invite leading theologians, thinkers, and activists to share their knowledge and stories with the Tulsa community. The Barton Clinton Gordy series honors the legacy of Dr. L.S. Barton, who was Boston Avenue's senior minister in the early 1900s. Fred Clinton, who helped establish Tulsa's first chartered hospital, and Ivy and Bona Gordy. Ivy was an Oklahoma Teacher of the Year, and his wife, Bona, a beloved Sunday school teacher and member of the church chancel choir for over 50 years. Our guest lecturers invite deep reflection. Their eloquent presentations often enrich us, challenge us, and bless us. The subject matter before us is the U.S.-Mexico border. This is a topic that has polarized our nation in recent times. Some of the narratives, real and imagined, that permeate the air have created confusion, sometimes fear among people. Bishop Robert Schneese knows the border well. Having been born in the border town of Eagle Pass, Texas, and having spent over a decade as senior minister in McAllen, also a border town, he is someone who has dedicated and weaved a life of service to others through his deeply feeling and practical approach to theology. And yes, through his roots as a son of the border. If you are ever close to the border, and I mean really, really close that you can touch it, you begin to notice the ebb and flow of the river, the chirping of the birds that come and go, and the heart of communities across both sides which are deeply interwoven in a tapestry of bright color, culture, and imagination. To go to the border and beyond also means entering into the stories of others and ultimately gathering together at the river, the beautiful, beautiful river. Bishop, we hope that tonight you will take us there, to the river, and allow us to discover through your own stories, 
what God's love, which knows no borders, is all about. Nuestra casa es su casa. Our home is your home. Welcome again. Primero quiero dar la bienvenida a todos. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Uh, para mí es un privilegio de estar aquí con ustedes. Y gracias por su hospitalidad y por su interés y, su, uh, y sus esperanzas para la frontera. Y gracias, José, José Luis, hermano, for, uh, for your introduction. Thank you. Uh, for me, it's a privilege to be here, and I thank you for... Uh, for being here and your interest in the border. Uh, doy gracias a Dios por cada uno de ustedes y por todo lo que hacen para la misión de Cristo y para la misión de la Iglesia Metodista Unida. I give God thanks for every one of you and for all that you do for the purposes of Christ and for the United Methodist Church. Um, we're going to change subjects here this evening, and uh, I, I do appreciate your words. Uh, Jose Luis was born in the same hospital as uh, my youngest son in uh, McAllen, and uh, that's kind of cool to see the connections there. So, um, uh, I've, uh, well, first of all, just a little orientation. After yesterday's sermon, some of you were saying, so where is that place with all those sheep and goats? And, uh, <laughs> and then I also thought I'd give you a little orientation to, uh, to, the, to the border. You know, I, I will probably lose my Texas citizenship, and they're going to revoke my Texas passport for so misshapen the state here. But, um, but uh, I was born in Eagle Pass, Texas, about right there. And um, the hospital I was born in was on an old fort that had been bought by the city, and that uh, fort was uh, built in the mid-19th century, uh, to protect the, uh, the new uh, state <laughs> from, uh, from invaders from Mexico, okay? Uh, for the most part, the soldiers who were a part of that and who actually housed there were part of a series, uh, at least part of a series of forts that go all the way through West Texas and South Texas were uh, African-American soldiers, Seminole Indian scouts, uh, that, uh, that received uh, very low pay and went to the kind of the roughest place they could send soldiers, and, uh, and, and that was in uh, West Texas and along the border. So when we kind of interrogate our history of wherever we, wherever we live, wherever we grow up, uh, as it relates to race and ethnicity and roots, uh, it, there are always surprises. Uh, so I was born in this hospital uh, just 400 yards, and... and and, and your, Jose Luis, as you talked about the beauty of the river, I wish I had brought the slides that kind of accompany this when I do it other places, because it shows fish, you know, fishing along the river. So the sunset at the river. It shows uh, canoeing on the river, because that's the river I grew up on. That's still the river you can go down and, uh, and, and see. And I, have a, I had a picture of this fellow two years ago pulling out this eight pound, nine ounce black bass from the river just as I drive up to it. And this is between all these, I mean, this is a long way from any major town or anything. Now, when you do that, it's a matter of minutes before a border patrolman <laughs> shows up to, uh, uh, to ask you what you're doing there. But, uh, but the border I remember is a place of just beauty 
and life and the uh, intermixing, not the dividing of cultures, but the intermixing of cultures. And uh, long before it was a border, it was a river, and one of the great rivers uh, of, of North America. So I was born about right here in Eagle Pass. Um, I grew up in Del Rio, which is uh, another border town just up the river by 56 miles. For a few years, we lived in Sonora, and this region here was the wool and hair capital of the world, so we said, you know, so that answers that question. Uh, my ministry was down in the Rio Grande Valley, which is the five counties in South Texas. And so um, uh, Brownsville's down there, Harlingen, where I served, McAllen, I served for 16 years. Um, and then just for orientation, San Antonio is where I live now. And the conference I preside over covers all of that South Texas, including about 500 miles of uh, border with Mexico. Um, some, when I served all those years in McAllen, often people would say, you're from Texas and along the border? Well, I have a friend that lives in El Paso. I'd say, really? Gosh, that's just 830 miles away. <laughs> so, uh, so back uh, about three years ago, I was uh, concerned about uh, a number of things about how the border was being reflected in public media, and I realized none of that is the border I knew and loved, where I lived for all but a few years of my life, you know? And, uh, and I thought, what, what, are, what do you do about that? So this is before uh, President Trump, in case you're wondering. I mean, this, was, this has been on kind of a, uh, a pathway that has not been good for a long time, about how it's caricatured. And, uh, and so I tried to think of a way of just communicating more about that. And it took me to a kind of a different genre of writing. Uh, most of my writing and books have been kind of church leadership material, or it's been uh, personal devotional material. But, uh, but I thought the best way of doing this might be to just tell personal stories. And so I started working on a collection that's called Border Crossing. And uh, I've got about eight of these completed. I probably have another dozen in mind. I don't know whether they'll ever be published as a book. A lot of folks have expressed a great deal of interest in that. But what I found uh, a couple of years ago that to actually read a story uh, was very well received, even though that's not my usual style. I don't ever sit here with a re leadership book and, uh, that I wrote and say, let me read you this paragraph or this page or something. Um, but I've, I've done readings of these stories before uh, three clergy convocations that each had about 300, 400 people present of, in different parts of the country. I've done it before different college ministries uh, in the state of Texas. I've done, it, uh, I've done it as a sermon at a congregation. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, I'm, I'm doing it next week at Candler School of Theology, doing two stories. And a couple of weeks later at Wesley uh, Seminary in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so they, they're kind of taking on a life of their own. And they have uh, four of them in uh, audio are found at ministrymatters.com slash border crossing. And I have a little stack of cards, if I don't forget it, that have the information about that. Uh, at, in the fall... Uh, Ministry Matters, which is a kind of most uh, kind of a clergy church resource website, for the most part, 
contacted me and asked if I would do a story about the border. And I said, I don't, I won't do that. I'll find other people to do the stories. But how about if I do an audio uh, uh, reading of a story and then have, at that time, I, I mean, uh, it suggested my uh, uh, Laura Merrill, who's my uh, assistant to the bishop and uh, grew up bilingual and has been preaching in Tornillo out in, up by El Paso where the, uh, where the detention centers are, uh, asked her to write a story. And so what we did is four weeks where I did readings and, uh, and then different people, uh, mostly clergy voices from the Rio Texas Conference wrote articles about their experience and uh, those can be read uh, at that site, and then the uh, audios, uh, you can listen to those. So just by way of introduction, why that name border crossing? When we cross a border, we discover people we otherwise would count as strangers. We become something different. Stepping across a border changes how we see ourselves, how we perceive others, and how others view us. Border crossing helps us live in more than one world. And border crossing has two meanings. It, it, first, it's a point of departure from one place and the entry point to another. It's a threshold, it's a place of transition, such as the border crossing is uh, a few miles ahead. Things will be different when we get to the border, when we cross it, even if we're uncertain about what that will mean. A border crossing can be physical, such as a checkpoint between countries, or a border crossing can be intangible such as at the point where we cross, such as uh, the point we cross within ourselves to decide to do something differently, or the point of connection when we seek to understand someone unknown to us. Border crossing also refers to an experience. You know, how was the trip? Well, it was fine, except it was a pretty difficult border crossing. In that sense, a border crossing is movement, transition, growth, change, stepping from one way of understanding to another. And I would argue that our lives are comprised of a series of border crossing. And the more adept we get, we become at putting ourselves in situations that will change our minds, the more we will experience growth. We must cross borders if we're going to have a better world because we're so polarized, distant, and distrustful of each other. Border crossing helps us coexist despite language and cultural differences. For me, border crossing has been done sporadically and imperfectly. At times I've been ashamed of my timidity, and other times I'm humbled by who I meet and what I learn. These stories include moments of fear, hesitation, failure, resolve, and growth. They describe early attempts at composing a life different from the one that was scripted for me. The theme is simple. We should be willing to put ourselves in situations that will cause us to change our minds, or more importantly, our hearts. When we cross a border between nations or in our communities or in our neighborhoods or within ourselves, old certainties are replaced with new ways of seeing the world. Christ enters people's lives and dissolves existing attitudes, perceptions, and assumptions, whatever they may be. Jesus asked his disciples to leave their nets, to pick up their mats and walk, to journey away from their homes to follow him. He invites his followers to make becoming uncomfortable a spiritual discipline. Jesus was a border crosser. 
He dined with tax collectors and sinners, breaching Pharisaic restrictions. He told stories of Samaritans, drawing people across borders that they had indelibly etched in their minds. He spoke to a foreign woman at the well, overstepping boundaries of propriety. He crossed borders literally and figuratively to reach the poor at the margins, Zacchaeus in the tree, Nicodemus in the night. Border crossing should be as natural as breathing, you would think, for Christians, because Jesus so instinctively knew that following God meant crossing borders. We are disciples because we've said yes to Jesus, to following him, even across borders. The first story, border crossing story, that I'm going to read this evening is entitled The Baptism. The Baptism. The jingling, the jingling of the bell that hung from the front door alerted me that someone had entered the front office. The visitor's voice was too soft for me to understand, but there was no mistaking the secretary's response. I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish. I rose from my desk chair and moved through the doorway, doorway of my office into the reception area. A petite young woman in casual jeans and wearing a colorful blouse was turning to leave. In Spanish, I asked her how we might be of help. Senorita, puedo ayudarle en algo? She paused as if giving us a second chance. Unknown visitors were common to us. Most spoke only Spanish, and many were women, seeking counsel, asking for prayer, or needing money for diapers. Some were fleeing a boyfriend after a night of abusive rage. Many found themselves in crisis, with no pathways forward and no numbers to call, seeking help from strangers who spoke a language they had not yet learned. This visitor was different from most, no older than 19 by my estimation, She seemed shy, but naturally confident. She had not anticipated that stepping into a church in downtown McAllen, Texas, a few miles from the border with Mexico, would require navigating the language divide or engaging with Anglos sitting behind desks and offices. This was likely a scenario she preferred to avoid. She smiled at my accented Spanish, but still seemed uncertain about whether to stay. I would like to speak to a priest, please, she said. I introduced myself as the pastor, telling her that this was a Methodist church with pastors instead of priests. I apologized for my imperfect Spanish and with a motion of the hand gestured that she was welcome to come into the office. She stepped in. She sat with her handbag in her lap. Her straight black hair fell to her shoulders unrestrained. She seemed tentative an uneasiness that was born, that was more than timidity, a discomfort perhaps because of differences in language, culture, gender. Her eyes searched the room, darting from diplomas on the wall to photos on top of cabinets to papers on the desk, as if trying to discern whether this was a trustworthy place. Her simple clothing and jewelry were fashionable but inexpensive, her mascara carefully applied but not extravagant, giving her a pleasant and professional appearance, not unlike hundreds of young women who worked as sales clerks, cashiers, and food servers 
within a half mile of the church. I left the door to my office half open, and we exchanged names. Hers was Leticia. Do you baptize babies, she asked in Spanish. Never had a stranger stepped into my office off the street to ask that, and my look betrayed my surprise. She, she edged forward in her seat and reworded her request. I want my baby baptized. Is that something you can do? Her leaning forward lent an intensity to her words. Since she had asked for a priest, I felt compelled to clarify again that this was not a Catholic church, and I was not a Catholic priest. I was the pastor of a Methodist church. She asked me to explain the difference. I struggled with how to distill centuries of historical and theological distinctions <laughs> into a few sentences and further how to translate them into a Spanish that was comprehensible. She seemed distracted by my theological and linguistic acrobatics, or annoyed, as if my concerns were irrelevant self-indulgences that delayed us from getting to the matter at hand. Distinctions between Catholics and Methodists did not count much for Leticia. Tell me about your child, I asked, to try and get us back on track. She told me about her six-week-old uh, six daughter, Esperanza. I asked the usual questions. What prompted her to want Esperanza baptized? Did she belong to a community of faith, a church? Her answers were watery thin, no more so, I am ashamed to say, than the responses I received from many of my own members, which often ran along the lines of, because the grandparents are going to be in town next month. I asked her why she wanted Esperanza baptized in this church. She told me that she had taken a bus from Westlaco, another border community 20 miles down the road, to go shopping in McAllen. When she saw the church, she felt the need to ask a priest to baptize her baby. Her, pro her voice broke and her eyes watered as she spoke about her longing to have Esperanza baptized. Besides, she added, this church is beautiful. It seems right. Again, I wondered if she was clear about this not being a Catholic church and questioned whether my language skills had sufficiently covered the point. But I didn't want to follow that convoluted path again. <laughs> Our church building was a historic Romanesque structure built with early Texas mission motifs, including red Spanish tile roofs and stonework arches replicated in doorways and along covered walkways. Ancient ivy crawled up our brickwork, giving us a cloistered appearance. Countless travelers, transients, and visitors stepped into our sanctuary, assuming that, we, that they were entering a Catholic church. As best we could across the language barriers, I answered her questions, and she responded to my inquiries about her faith, her reasons for wanting Esperanza baptized, and her understanding of the sacrament. So, will you baptize my daughter? Not so fast, not so simple. Most baptisms are performed for infants born into families of the congregation and after counsel with the parents. Baptism is generally not a private ceremony, but a public celebration. It involves commitments from the parents and binds the members of the church to a host of ongoing responsibilities to help the child grow in grace and in the knowledge and love of God. Baptisms for walk-ins were not the norm. 
On the other hand, I had made plenty of exceptions. The infant in the hospital, whom I baptized moments before she died. The inmate in the county jail, who had never been to our church. The woman who lived in an abandoned boxcar in Mexico, who asked to be baptized while a few of us were delivering food. Decades before, during that tender time when my own parents were exploring whether to join the Methodist Church in Texas, they phoned an unknown pastor in Nebraska. They had never visited his church, but they asked if he would baptize my baby sister so that nearby relatives could be present. He graciously agreed. What would have happened if that pastor had said no? Would my parents have turned away from the Methodist Church? I preferred to err on the side of grace. I've turned down requests for, to perform weddings because I believe the marriage was ill-advised. With funerals, my pol policy was to accommodate whenever possible unless I encountered a bizarre request from someone wanting to be buried with his Ford Mustang or to have her ashes scattered across the floor of a casino. <laughs> I say yes to baptisms because the efficacy of the sacrament does not rest with a level of understanding or the purity of the motivation of the parents or with their ability to ar articulate the meaning of the event. I counsel parents as best I can, but I trust God to be active even if the baby is completely passive, totally asleep, or screaming like a banshee. God's grace is present even if the parents' greatest concern is whether the photographs will do justice to the needlework in the baptismal gown. Who else will you invite to the baptism, I ask? Grandparents, relatives? She said it would be her and her baby and the priest, of course. I thought, no family gatherings of cousins and aunts and uncles? The simplicity contrasted with a practice among many Hispanics of throwing elaborate celebrations for baptisms, complete with ancestral baptismal gowns, embossed invitaciones, not unlike those for weddings, and recuerdos or mementos for relatives. The earnestness of Leticia's request nudged me toward performing the baptism, and even though I wondered what family circumstance made her forego inviting relatives, or even the baby's father, I was, uh, I was preparing to do the baptism. I was ready to walk through the questions I would ask her at the service and set a time, perhaps with a few church staff members present. Then I would baptize Esperanza. When you baptize a baby, she asked, do you give a certificate? Como? I said instinctively. Excuse me? What did you say? I needed her to repeat that request. She proceeded to describe a baptismal certificate, a document that had the baby's name, date and place of birth, along with the parents' names, and the date and place of the baptism signed by the pastor. Would she receive one if I baptized her daughter? She knew what she was asking for. Alarms began to blare when I grasped what she was asking. Something within me began to wither, she entered my office wondering whether she could trust me. Now I found myself questioning whether I could trust her. Along the border, 
Few things are as important as papeles, papers, documentos, documents. Do you have your papers? Has he applied for his papers? When will she finally get her papers in order? Few things are more frightening than to be caught sin papeles, without papers, even though thousands of people live and work without having them in order. Papeles refers to documents that give legitimacy to one's citizenship or one's ability to work or to travel or merely to be present in the country. Papers are green cards, passports, entry visas, birth certificates, work permits, social security cards, travel documents, embassy letters, consulate receipts, tax records, pay stubs, utility bills, vehicle registrations, military discharges, and driver's licenses. Papers come with signatures of authorities, official stamps, embossed seals, seals, government watermarks, laminated cards, or photos of faces. No border is complete without protocols related to papers. Papers grant privileges, rights, status, standing, security, future, or they deny these things. Without papers, doors are closed, opportunities limited. Without papers, people live in fear, go underground, become vulnerable to threat and abuse. With papers, doors open, the future is unlimited. Immigration issues are the waters through which people swim daily along the border. Immigration is not abstract principles or distant politics. Rather, it it is about where you work, who you work for, who works for you, whether your children attend school or your grandmother goes to the hospital. Immigration status determines if you find employment, live in decent housing, drive a car, or feel secure reporting a crime. The distinctions between citizenship or alien, between legal and illegal, are not always black and white. There are shades of gray and dozens of statuses, including work visas and entry for families of those with work visas and permanent residency and a whole slew of others. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, day laborers, maids, farm workers, cooks, cashiers, all rely on papers to work and live in the United States. Papers matter. Where babies are born makes a difference for the rest of their lives. Yes, we give a baptismal certificate to the parents when we baptize a baby, I answered. But I was thinking, was the baptism a ruse? a way of getting me to sign a certificate that says her her Esperanza was born in the United States. A record of baptism that indicates a person was born in the U.S. is one way of proving citizenship in the absence of a birth certificate. Baptismal certificates from churches are not as good as birth certificates from uh, from hospitals, but for people with few threads of connection, they are better than nothing. I imagined a neighbor suggesting to Leticia that she should ask a priest to baptize Esperanza so she gets a certificate that says she was born in Texas. Where was your daughter born, I asked, before I could think through whether I really wanted to hear the answer. She was born in Westlaco, she answered, at home. Her eyes darted away from mine, 
Her breathing quickened. Her confidence was gone. Leticia's anxiety was now palpable. We were both uncomfortable with the direction the conversation was taking. When do you want to have your baby baptized, I asked, and she told me that she could bring Esperanza the next day. The moment of decision had come. Would I baptize Esperanza or not? I was young in ministry at the time and unsure of these things. But I wanted to mull this over, pray this through, talk with someone about what to do. I wanted more information. I needed time. I felt unprepared and barely competent for understanding the dynamics of the conversation. My mind reeled through possibilities. What was at stake for me, for my reputation, for the church, if she drew me into an attempt to legitimize citizenship? What began as a pastoral request now seemed fraught with moral implications and legal consequences. Every pastoral intuition told me to baptize Esperanza. But another part of my brain pushed back, the suspicious, fearful, cautious side. I needed a pause to regather. I wanted help. I want to think about your request for a few minutes, I said awkwardly, the words sounding disingenuous even to me. I asked if she would please wait in the reception area for a few minutes, never thinking about how she might perceive this. I didn't know what else to do. She sensed that my confidence has, had lapsed as well. Some dynamic between us changed, which the differences in language and culture made difficult to understand or articulate. Something was at risk now for both of us that hadn't been there before. She shook her head slightly as if unconsciously needing to communicate her anxiety about what might follow, and she stood to leave for the waiting area. The bright, lively eyes that had communicated purpose were now overshadowed with a sad, contemplative air and a vulnerability. As soon as Leticia stepped out, I closed the door and reached for the phone. I called a lawyer, a friend and confidant who I had uh, asked for counsel on several occasions before. When he picked up, I replayed the conversation. Questions poured forth. Should I ask to see a birth certificate before putting the baby's place of birth on the baptismal certificate? Should I require proof of Leticia's legal residency? Would it make a difference if her father was, if the father of the baby was a citizen? If she's here illegally, am I breaking the law, aiding and abetting some sort of fraud? I didn't even know what abetting meant but I'd heard it enough on television that it flowed smoothly off my tongue. <laughs> After my run of questions, there was silence. My friend sighed. And he said, Robert, you are not the Border Patrol. You are not an immigration official. You are not her employer. You are a United Methodist pastor, period. Have you ever required other parents to show you the birth certificates of their children before you baptize them? Of course not. Talk to her about baptism and ask the questions you usually ask parents. Then you decide whether to baptize Esperanza. My face burned with embarrassment. What he said was so obvious. Why hadn't I seen it? 
After we hung up, I stared at the handset, stunned by the utter simplicity of his advice. I was so relieved about the way this now was unfolding that I smiled and jumped up from my chair to invite Leticia into my office to confirm the details of Esperanza's baptism. Leticia was gone. The reception area was empty. She sat down for no more than a minute and then left without saying a word, the secretary reported. Whatever anxieties my questions stirred up were no doubt amplified by inviting her to step out while I closed my office door. She likely feared I was calling authorities to report her for something. I rushed to the street and looked down the sidewalk knowing it was too late. I would never see her again. Like a magnet beside a compass, papers and politics pulled me off course, distorted my calling, confused my sense of direction. I mishandled the whole situation. I felt alone and regretful. Fear kept me from crossing a border. A lesser version of myself had won. Leticia remains in my mind until today. She seems present at each baptism I've performed over the last 30 years. She shapes every conversation I have with parents about the sacrament. I hope she had Esperanza baptized by someone less paralyzed by peripheral issues than me. Those borders we regret that we did not cross remain with us forever. The most significant baptism of my ministry was one I never performed. What was Leticia looking for when she walked through our door? Whether she was focused on the sacrament or grasping for a thread of hope that perhaps a priest's signature might open a door to legitimacy, she yearned for the well-being of her baby. What would you do for the good of your children? Joseph and Mary took their baby Jesus to a foreign land to avoid an emperor's capricious and deadly edict, crossing borders along the way. Would you and I do the same? Would we fudge to get documents? These are borderline questions. Explicitly or unconsciously, baptism expresses hope for future well-being. Baptism highlights the gift-like quality of God's grace, a love that is not earned or achieved. Nothing you have makes any difference, not even a birth certificate. My father altered the date on his birth certificate to enlist in the Marine Corps underage to escape a difficult home situation. When he became a federal law enforcement officer, he corrected the birth date. Now we tell the story to next generations with pride for his audacity, his courage for his service to the country, and for the decision that changed his future and ours forever for the better. After looking for Leticia, I returned to my office and closed the door, contemplating the many and varied worlds that coexist along a border. I had a car and a garage to park it in insurance for health and life, a reliable income and good home, social security, access to doctors and lawyers, an education as reflected 
in the diplomas on the walls, a family as seen in the photos on the cabinet, a job as evidenced by the papers on my desk. How different Leticia's world was from mine. The borders that separated us so numerous that it, that it makes my head swim. We live unaware of how others experience the world when they are not in our life. We have no interaction until cultures clash, an immigrant mom steps into a middle-class church, a white officer encounters a black teenager. Suddenly the vast chasms in experience and perception are thrust into view and we glimpse the genuine, raw, vulnerable side of our life together. How did Paul and Peter baptize thousands so carelessly or so graciously without attention to who qualified? Did they check people's legal status? I hate being used by those circumventing the law or by the government wanting me to draw distinctions that in God's kingdom simply do not exist. Baptism is not a political event. Grace is sin fronteras, without borders. Baptism, the word derives from the Greek baptismos, meaning to wash or immerse. Baptism signifies the sacramental washing by which the soul is cleansed as the body feels the water. The sacrament signifies regeneration, illumination, new birth. Baptism also has a metaphorical sense. It describes an initiation into a particular role, typically one perceived as difficult, an ordeal that tests courage and strength for the first time is a baptism. The experience with Leticia constituted my initiation into the ambiguities of ministry along the border. The baptism that did take place that day was my own. <laughs>